0: Hello, this is Brad Redderson, and welcome to Voices from 2020, an audio program powered by Stranova, exploring strategic reflections on our business present from the perspective of the future, and featuring your hosts, Bill Veltrup and Firehawk. It's one of several podcast series on the subject of strategic innovation in business offered by Stranova, a resource group dedicated to helping you achieve and capitalize on the incredible potential available for your own business. With our over 30 years of experience leading innovation, we know what it takes to turn ideas into profits. Please visit us to learn more at www.stranova.com. And now, please join us for this week's episode of Voices from 2020. Welcome to the ninth
1: in our podcast series called Voices from 2020, where we travel forward in time to an ideal future and interview some of the visionaries and architects of that future in order to help us all remember how we got there. I'm Firehawk, and along with Bill Veltrup, we'll again be your hosts for this trip to an ideal 2020. As we continue our year-long exploration into what it took for wholeness to become the North Star of all our human organizations, we want to again thank Brad Rederson for hosting this podcast series on his Stranova site. It's truly an honor to be part of Brad's passionate inquiry into strategic innovation. In reporting back from an ideal 2020, We agreed to abide by the values and ethics of the Guild of Evolutionary Time Travelers, or GET, and to not identify specific future events in our conversations. In this month's podcast, we interview David Sibbett, the President and Founder of the Grove Consultants International. David has been an organizational consultant and information designer for more than 30 years, Building on eight prior years of experience in public affairs leadership development at the Coro Foundation, he's the author of a whole series of leading-edge group process tools and models for facilitation, team leadership, and organizational transformation. He's also a master facilitator of large-scale group processes, strategic visioning, and creative future-oriented symposia. David received his master's degree in journalism from the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University and a bachelor's degree in literature from Occidental College in Los Angeles. So join us now in the ideal year 2020 and listen in on a wide-ranging conversation with David Sibbitt.
2: Back in college, actually, um, I stumbled into Terry Gilliam. Who was uh, making quad posters for the seniors when I was a freshman, and I decided that we would compete with him.
3: When was that? What year yeah, was that?
2: 1961. Right? That's okay. ancient mm-hmm. history. But I ended up doing poster art all the way through college as a result of stepping up during hazing week to compete with him, uh-huh. always trying to be as good as as Terry Gilliam, mm. and I got pretty good at it. Uh, and then uh, went for ten years in journalism, but I came back and and after eight years of uh, leadership development work with the Coro Foundation in San Francisco, where we were preparing people for public affairs through internships, journalism and poster art came together in a methodology called group graphics, Mm. where um, I learned that uh, if I used the tools of graphic arts to listen to people, as distinguished from presenting to people, Mm. that remarkable things happened in the group process. Like what? Well, there are three things that uh, just absolutely happened every time. One is participation rates just shot up. Okay. So, you know, here in 2020 where, uh, you know, participation, interaction, networking is sort of old school. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we were really breaking the paradigm then about how communications ought to happen in business. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of it was, um, you know, Graphic design package things, and it was a packaging problem to get information communicated well, mm-hmm. but uh saying to people, "What do you think and then drawing a picture uh people are absolutely fascinated with live interactive drawing, as we all know because you know I mean you probably have one of those boards in, in your home where you can just go up and play on the wall and we were doing this with paper and and markers okay. in those days um and, you know, people weren't so sensitive about cutting trees as they are now. I mean, you, you just cannot, you know, big papers is really reserved for ceremonial occasions now. But in those days, we, you know, we used Rollins and Newsprint. And in addition to the participation rates going up, um, I, I discovered that uh, when you mapped things on a large board, that people could, attention could be held on complex topics for much, much longer. Mm. And in fact, uh, that visual thinking is systems thinking. Mm -hmm. It's almost the same thing. Because systems thinking uh, is the ability to appreciate the interconnection of things beyond what your senses Mm -hmm. are directly appreciating. Mm -hmm. And so systems thinking is inherently about display making Mm -hmm. and constructing models of reality that are not directly sensed. So doing maps of political campaigns, power structures in city hall, all this right away took the whole group to the point where they could work three or four hours at a time without any sense of um, boredom or wanting to take breaks and do levels of analysis that uh, just hadn't been happening with purely verbal discussions. So high participation systems thinking and it creates an artifact so it supports group memory.
3: So, so take us into the, into the present here in 2020. And you worked so much with organizations uh, back when you were actively uh, directly doing your your visual language work with them so as you look at organizations today what is it that you see in the more progressive organizations that tells you that they have especially corporations that we are we've crossed the tipping point
2: i think what was really creating revolution was that the tools of computing were suddenly allowing us to understand how the systems of nature actually work. And this is where it intersected with my work with visuals. Um, I realized way back in, I think it was in the 90s, oh my God, my memory is getting kind of, I remember when Gleick wrote his first book on chaos, Mm. and he was a reporter reporting on chaos theory. started originally in 61 by a meteorologist named Lorenz, who began looking at how putting quadratic equations through a computer could simulate weather patterns in the sense that they were dynamic and unpredictable, but yet it would be nice to know if you could do some kind of predicting. Mm -hmm. And uh, began to notice that very small anomalies in his uh, input data would create very large differences downstream. at the time, science didn't think the small anomalies were, were that important, but he found out that dynamic systems are very sensitive to initial conditions. Mm -hmm. and there are many other insights like that, like the idea of fractal uh, patterns, that uh, nature creates itself through repeating processes not repeating structures, and that the repeating processes give rise to structures. So for instance if you take a line and branch it, and a line and branch it, and branch every line, you'll get a tree drawing pretty quick. So put that together with computers, you begin to find out that natural systems are composed of free agents linking together uh, in diverse branching patterns. And their mechanisms are building blocks, internal sets of rules that are often inconsistent but adaptable to different climatic conditions and stuff. And things like tagging, you know, the seagulls looking for the other seagulls that have red dots on their beak, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, as this understanding migrated into business, people began to figure out how to be adaptive like animal systems are, On a business, so remember the book a long time ago, The Long Tail, Mm. talked about the growth of niche businesses. I mean, this is just like ho hum. I mean, you know, the number of little business. I remember going to that Paul Hawkins thing when he finally came out with Blessed Unrest, Mm. and he had that scrolling list of a million. I think close to a million organizations working on the problems of indigenous peoples, uh, environment, and social justice. Well. If you look back and remember Drucker and I do, the word organization didn't even exist until like the 1930s. And yet here is over a million spontaneously organismic immune system responses to the problems we're in right now with all these little things. Well, that's happened in business as well. Everything had, well, peak oil really helped out, you know, uh, a lot. I mean, I don't know what you feel about $25 a gallon gas, but, you know, I don't drive my car a whole lot. Mm -hmm. I have workshops out here People's people for the two week long workshops where you can go horse riding and stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, this idea of Mac, Mac meeting, you know, let's meet in two minutes, you know, and try to <laughs> solve these problems. That is way gone. The result in business has been a localization and in some ways a decommodification, mm-hmm. you know, like Burning, the whole Burning Man gang would love to claim credit for this, but, you know, just like the hippies, who, they didn't start everything, but they, they were in on something, which is that, uh, there's something rich and wonderful about cheese that comes from Sonoma
3: mm-hmm.
2: or cheese that comes from here.
3: Which is close to Point Reyes. Right? Yeah, yeah,
2: exactly, you know, and I I know the guy that I get my cheese from. I mean, he's got his cows up there. So, these people who were kind of quaint and moving to Point Reyes Station because they wanted to be near the farms back in the 90s, now that is the way it is done. I mean, it's really fun down in LA where they've torn up all the... Mm. you know, the, the LA is truck gardens and all kinds of stuff all over the place. I mean, they've reclaimed it because it, they just can't afford the food
4: mm-hmm.
2: trucking it in. I mean, peak oil solved that. So you've got a welter of local decommoditized crazy businesses all over the at the same time that the Halliburton's are building their space shields. Mm-hmm. So that's the world we live in is this, you know, uh, bifurcated buzzing network interconnectedness mm-hmm. with the big organizations you know, as China has really uh, become the world leader economically, you know, and America is kind of having to get used to being the laggard here, um, people automatically have moved to take advantage of that. Well, what's the tremendous advantage of of the West Coast? It's we've been living with this European-Asian interaction Mm -hmm. for decades and, in fact, know a lot about the interface of those philosophies, the cultures, what's going on. So suddenly the services industry, the professional services industry and the creative services industry... Daniel Pink sort of was pointing at this. He was saying, you know, the real uh, advantaged careers are going to be the creative careers, the right brain careers, because the left brain stuff is going to be taken over by the Asian countries and the developing countries. Well, you know, he was right. That's happened. And but what a creative... I mean, you know, Epsilon was just a little thing. You know, it's like the whole West Coast <laughs> is this fantastic, uh, creative, somatic, health uh, niche, not important at all in the power play part of the world, playground. Mm-hmm. And those of us who are indigenous to this area, who know that those, the Native Americans who lived here years and years, never built anything worth anything. Mm-hmm. They were hunter-gatherer, steward, guardians of the natural beauty of a place where 16 rivers come pouring out through the bay. Mm. All of that has come back because that is what is here. Right. And the big illusion, uh, got taken away. So, you know, peak oil, global warming. I mean, you know, California has been a desert many times. Mm. I mean, the fact that agriculture is having such a hard time in the Valley actually has empowered the truck gardens and, In L.A. down there, I mean, they've actually figured out drip irrigation. They've applied all the technology to it. Mm -hmm. But one of the most exciting movements has been the stewardship movement as reflected in uh, the growth of this great third sector, the common sector. Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing Peter Barnes talk about that at the Thought Leader Gathering way back in 2007. He had the insight that rather than making the market economy wrong, let's balance it. You know, much the way if you have a, an America's Cup racer that's got too much sale, you put a little hull in. You start doing hull design. Mm-hmm. So the social hull design has been the creating of these commons trusts and the empowerment of it. It was really great. That window of opportunity that came in when Bush crashed and burned and all of his cronies with him. I mean, you had this brief moment of progressive zeal and, and actually had some good industrial policy that began to come in from the government. But fortunately, people were you know, sensitive enough about how the Democrats can screw up just as much as the Republicans. They didn't let them go completely wild. <laughs> but they did get enough policy in there around setting up these community trusts, these commons trusts, mm-hmm. that now it's a three-way deal.
3: Explain what you mean by commons trusts. Well,
2: the, the, the NGO sector and the nonprofit sector, to some degree, was playing that role before. We have government, business, and public sector. Mm-hmm. So you've really got three entities, but the nonprofit world is pretty fragmented. The idea of a trust where the trustees are holding the future benefit to uh, new generations of people as their charge, not shareholder value, but future generational value. So rather than just leaving it in the hands of government and business and fighting over in pure market stuff, they started creating water trusts. Mm. Because people were just killing each other over this stuff. And and so you now have um, trusts that are managing certain critical waterways. It was one of the ways that they got around the whole Colorado River problem of just having to be pure market. Because it, it, the market economy doesn't really work when there's a monopoly, when there's just one mm. resource. People began to realize that children's creativity is part of the commons.
4: Mm. Mm.
2: and it's like every time a kid's born, this creative package gets born
4: mm.
2: and their ability to draw their ability to express themselves there but ability to dance and sing if i mean i 'm sure you have grandchildren
4: mm.
2: you know i'm actually I have my first great grandchild and uh it 's just a miracle how life springs eternal with the young people and we began to realize that the marketplace, these big corporations, were just using up children as fast as they were using up the land and everything else. Mm. That is really an, it was an exploitive relationship. Be, with the Internet going directly into the home, there just wasn't the baffling, and we were paying a great price for it. So there is increasing attention to children as being part of our commons. And the, there's some really new thinking in terms of, what can happen with schooling and and kind of places where children can get the kinds of support and nurturance and protection from things until they have bloomed a little bit mm. um, it became clear that all of this visual literacy was teachable to mm. the young kids in fact they came in with it yeah. and that was the big breakthrough was realizing that you don't really have to teach kids how to express themselves uh, in terms of that native impulse. You just need to give them chances to do it. Mm-hmm. So one of the movements has been the new schools by design movement that I fortunately was a part of in helping work with the American Architectural Foundation was really supporting uh, new school design. And they were partnering with technology companies and others, uh, retail companies, to say, look, with these appliances and these tools for producing, we don't need to confine kids to a desk in a classroom. We can actually have project-based, discovery-based learning. Mm. Well, this all started at the time of No Child Left Behind, and you would have thought in those days that you know everything was going to be tested, mm. you know, from the first grade on. But in fact, the roots of massively nonlinear, discovery-based, experiential, immersive education were being formed right there, as mirrored in the architecture of schools by major institutions. Well, that's the way it's being done now, because it's clear that the supporting a workforce that's creative and innovative is much more important than one that's standardized and cowed and, and contained. I mean, I'm having a wonderful time teaching teachers, mm-hmm. you know, how to encourage their children in visual literacy.
5: Mm-hmm. You know, so as I'm listening to you, I'm getting some echoes of ancient wisdom in addition to all of the all of the ways we've learned how to make it easier or make it more accessible or diffuse it more, but there's something um there's something inherently human about what you've been talking about about the children being uh, the commons you know that in the medicine wheel tradition. The, the fire in the center was the children's fire. Mm. That was the most important part of any community, mm. and that it was called that for that reason. Yes, know, because that is all of our concern that we hold the children this way. So, I'm, and I know that you've uh, had your own share of learning and journeys into the realms of questing and and seeing the world in concert with with the natural world in concert with natural systems and. And then, um, you know, finding that in that relationship, inspiration and support and challenge for your own life. Um, so, you know, how is how has that diffused itself further in the in the years since two thousand and seven? What do you what have you seen in the whole realm of, um, in a sense, uh, reconnecting, but also writing the next chapter of human wisdom.
2: I remember first hearing about one of my mentors' uh, journeys to Ecuador, meeting the Achua people who only encountered Western civilization, I think in the 90s, 1990 or something. And having them tell him that they needed help. But the help they needed was to change the dream of the North.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Not help with their tribe. They'd been living for thousands of years in the Amazon. Right. They didn't need help. They needed the cha- the dream of the North to change. Mm-hmm. And so the. Um,
3: what, what, if, what did that mean? What were they saying?
2: Well, what's wonderful is it. It wasn't clear what that meant. <laughs> uh, but what I when I heard that, uh, part of my commitment to moving to Point Reyes Station, and having horses and having my own press isn't just uh, anti-technology. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a lot of technology involved, and if it weren't for my global connections here, I wouldn't be able to sustain it the way I am. But it's to go deep and long as opposed to fast and shallow.
4: Yeah.
2: And the indigenous uh, practices were formed in deep and long mm-hmm. Uh, these people were not in a big hurry. Things weren't changing that much. Mm-hmm. And um, as we began to actually experience the impact of the long cycles, which you know many people says, "Wow, oh, we didn't see this coming." Well, some people did see it coming. Yeah. And we know that there are very long cycles at work uh, environmentally here. Um, and we also, in starting to think that way. Have realized their long cycles in terms of human cognition human capability I mean we for thousands and thousands and thousands of years have been vegetable eating walkers mm-hmm. you know who were not riding around in cars and airplanes mm-hmm. and so as in conjunction with peak oil and other things, people have actually found not just uh, help in indigenous wisdom but it's really exciting mm. to spend. Time at a leisurely way. I remember, Bill, when you first started holding those uh, Pathfinder circles, to spend a whole day in dialogue that had no agenda. A whole day Mm -hmm. with a group of 10 people just talking. Mm -hmm. Well, try a week. (laughs) You know, try try a month of silence. Mm -hmm. You know, people now have the ability to do that because they're poorer. Mm-hmm. They can't travel.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And so, uh, I, I still remember running into Bill Russell at a party one time. He was the guy who wrote the uh, book on the global brain. And he was interested. Peter, Peter Russell. Peter Russell, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Peter uh, was analogizing that uh, mm-hmm. human population was growing and at a certain point it would begin to self-organize and connect, mm-hmm. much the way the cells do in the in their brain. hmm Uh, But then kind of off to the side at this party, he says, you know, there's some people, some of the shamans who say that all this technology is actually impeding global communication, Mm. that that the dreamers and the original people had no problem communicating across distance. Huge distance. And I found now that I'm getting older and I have less impedance from my body and other things, you know, I I actually now finally eat right, uh, that... My, as my sensitivity has increased, mm-hmm. the depth and, and felt sense of connection with the people that I know around the world has increased and it doesn't take telephone calls. I mean, I'm in touch with a network of people who are working on holding the um, sacredness of this planet and its life and its children yeah, as nice. our stewardship.
5: I was going to say not just people, no, yeah, no, because you, right. you've been, well, you've been... You know my weakness for trees. I do, I do know your weakness for trees, and, and for desert, <coughs> and, and for the animals, for, and for mountains. But
2: it's it's the well, you're kind of calling me out on the mystical level. Uh, way back, how could I not? Way back uh, when I heard uh, Michael Mead say that uh, his definition of an elder was a person who made a shrine to the spirit as the body falls away mm. that that's really the the role of those of us who are sparkly in old age is to be a shrine to the spirit as the body falls away mm. well I held heading in I mean I knew that the 2020 was going to be the great divide and it is I mean it, you know you just have to read the newspaper and I'm not going to get into all the wild things that are happening this is, this is really tough if you're at all attached to the way it used to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as people realize that the old is falling away, the body's falling away, the infrastructures are caving in and collapsing, mm-hmm. you know, the, the systems that feed us, the systems that transport us, as all these problems are developing. What is left is what's been here all along. Right. And it is becoming stronger and brighter. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the great paradox that during the World War, sometimes people report on the most vibrant relationships in those vibrant communities. Um, I think that's what's happening now. It is an amazing igniting of human spirit that's occurring.
3: So you you said earlier that people are poorer now, and I think you were referring to the old definition of poor in terms of financial.
2: Yeah, I meant economically poor.
3: But, But from the standpoint of true wealth, in terms of, of of all dimensions of well-being. It's a different story.
2: Well, people are... There's plenty of work to do that's extremely important and meaningful. Right. And so um, it's interesting how fulfilling it can be to work on stuff where you have no question about its importance and value. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it's pretty important that my grandkids get food and stuff mm-hmm. you know so i don't mind going out there and weeding my garden
4: mm-hmm.
2: i don't mind that one little bit mm-hmm. uh, because i'm directly connected with them Absolutely. now they're not 100 percent dependent on what i'm raising right but they're out busy with their careers and things and they don't have much time to gar as to garden as i do mm-hmm. but they sure do like what
4: comes you know, out of that what garden.
2: comes out of that garden mm-hmm. and you know they support us, and we support them. I mean, it's brought families closer together. Um,
3: cause and, when with the kind of localization that you're describing, them, cause and effect are are much yeah. more apparent.
2: And I think it's you know the, the the big guys are a little bit better behaved too. I mean, the spotlight is a little more severe. They they got a lot of you know spankings there when the government began. Turning its uh, investigative policies on people, mm-hmm. you know, after the big election, and you know, it's it it'll go back. I mean, it can get corrupt again if we if we make it through this turn. Mm-hmm. It's not like we solve these problems, but uh, I've never felt more alive than you know, at seventy seven years old and my body crapping out. I just didn't think that I would feel this way, mm-hmm. but it's. It is thrilling to be in a position to to see some of the long cycles. As you know, I've been keeping journals since way back in the 70s. And uh, I spend a, a good part of my time actually going back at, as a journalist. I have come back to my original mm-hmm. calling and actually uh, mapping some of these long cycles. Particularly, I've been always interested in in how ideas spread, mm-hmm. and uh, how people's concepts of what's possible spread. And the, the things that I've been able to share out of that perspective, the long cycle perspectives, um, has been very well received. And, you know, I have all kinds of opportunities now to consult with people on this stuff. I'm not doing the meetings anymore mm-hmm. and, you know, trying to do organizational change work or riding the rapids very often. I mean, I, I just don't get called out for that. But mm-hmm. I'm very willing to be a coach for the folks who've got more energy for it. Right. And working along cycles is is, is hard when you're young and don't see them.
4: Right. right. And
2: that's equally true now. Yeah. And so, you know, it's been fun being part of, you know, I, I was always at the lip end of the baby boomers. Mm-hmm. You know, I was born in 44. So the boomer middle was born in 47, 48, you know, around in there. It's fun to be part of redefining elderhood and Mm -hmm. what it means. I mean, the fact that we got all this great equipment to speak out with, to share with, to internet with, you know, as our bodies are crapping out, we don't have to travel.
4: That's
2: right. I mean, our minds can travel. Our ability to communicate can travel. Uh, You know, and the lucky people who get to come ride horses, well, it's not bad having a couple of thresholds to jump through before you get to spend a lot of time with a guy who's full of beans and still going.
3: So cycling
5: back to uh, organizations, you know, I was just curious what you, what you see uh, in the organizational world, because you, you know, you played in that whole realm of organizational change for a lot of years. And um, what do you see that's the very best of what's going on in terms of Innovation, creativity, spark, life, spirit in the whole realm of organizations in 2020. Where's what really gives you the most? Oh, wow! This is really good.
2: Well, I, the thing that's most exciting to me is is people actually understanding what an adaptive organization's like and what leadership's role is in nurturing an environment where people thrive rather mm-hmm. than one where they're commanded. Yeah. Uh, I remember back working with the army when they were beginning, they were being forced to think this way as a result of all those horrible wars in the Middle East. Uh, really, the power needed to be with the troops on the ground out and running around in the city. Right. Um, the same thing is true in the marketplace. To, to work a niche market, you've got to depend on dealers that are out there in the cultures. Mm-hmm. And you've got to have uh, networks that can sell and make decisions and do things and adapt. Uh, in ways that never before. I mean, the the idea of mass way back in the 1950s is it's just not mass anymore uh, in that way. Um, it's... So, to, to, to have an enterprise of any scale, um, you've got to scale the way animal systems scale or the way mm-hmm. living ecology scale. Right. And we've really come to understand that. I mean, it is something that's known and taught now and it doesn't mean that you don't have room for command and control and more traditional highly organized i mean i think one of the things that has been most satisfying to me is is as ecological thinking has begun to become understood more widely people begin to see organizations not as single things but as collections of things and really looking at them as ecosystems of Different kinds of organizations that have different uh needs mm-hmm. um, that's pretty satisfying, as you know, I was working on that pretty hard and had published a bit in that area mm-hmm. um, and we're we're getting more literate about it
5: as you kind of stop for a moment in twenty twenty what do you want to talk about
2: The most troubling thing to me is. To actually stay open to the pain that's going on with all of the death that's occurring as a result of uh, global warming, mm-hmm. um, um, it is not clear that civilization is going to make it anything like as thriving as as it is now on the West Coast. I mean, we're we're have been for a long time been resource blessed. But uh if you travel the world um uh, there are places that where it's really bad. And the amount of disease uh problems we're having with the spread of insects and recurrences of the big plagues and stuff, I mean you know, it's it's I didn't want to get into that side of it, but it's it's very real. And um with threats of this size Come fear and demagogues, mm. and people who take advantage of people's fear. And um, there are lots of signs that this is alive and well, you know, in our world. Um, you know, in the time of, uh, I mean, the practice that I've been following, which is, uh, you know, as a result of. Many, many vision quests and a consistent kind of thing is the. Uh, you know, I was born into Christianity. My father's a minister; was a minister into his nineties. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christian values are at my core. I've studied and followed the Native American path. Uh, growing up in the Eastern Sierra, it made the most sense to me as a way, you know, to not separate spirituality from life. Mm-hmm. And so, as a daily practice, I don't. Uh, and then the Tibetan practices, the Tibetan Buddhism practices of uh, really retraining the body to be uh, spiritually open and sensitive on the full dimensions. Mm-hmm. Uh, their methodologies for um, opening up and waking up are some of the most developed of any of the traditions on the planet and I've been working on all three of those tracks and working on the integration of that Mm
4: -hmm.
2: but one of the myths out of the Tibetan tradition is that um, there was a time in the past when a great amount of evil was being perpetrated and Bhairava and other gods were having human sacrifice and murder and rising to face that was the god Haruka and Vajrayogini who Created the the chakrasamvara practices, which are the fire yoga practices of Tibetan Buddhism, and it has to do with instead of denying and pushing off and being afraid of the evils, embracing them, and taking them in, and transmuting them, and so the poison of hatred becomes compassion. Yeah, you know, the poison of ignorance becomes wisdom. And you know, there are other gods that uh, stand for that as well. Well, in pursuing that kind of practice and being networked with people who are working on that kind of level, it's really sometimes challenging to stay open. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we have pharmacological delights to match our technology today. And it is easy to click off. Mm -hmm. And that's what I worry about, Mm -hmm. is... um, People having the right impulse and choosing the wrong answer. And the right impulse is to return to health and innocence and connectedness. Right. And the wrong answer is doing it with all the shortcuts. Right. And so, I'm not getting crabby in my old age, but I'm <laughs> I'm getting flintier. Yeah. Uh, and you know, my patriarch. Are the old bristlecones, you know, the longest living things in the world were those old trees up there in the White Mountains. Yeah. And they cling to the dolomite, and, you know, seven-eighths of them are dead as a doornail. Beautiful sandblasted old twisting hulks with their live cambium going up, you know, the wind-protected side. Right and blooming and blooming for 4,000, 5,000 years. Now, how the heck do they do that in the winds and storms and lightning and up there? And I've been fascinated with that all of my life.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, there are those of us who are <laughs> clinging to the Dolomite here and, and believe in the vitality of Gaia and her life force. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to wear it on my sleeve. Mm-hmm. But I've got a lot of allies. And... Yeah. We're holding, we're holding. And we aren't going anywhere. And so you know, a lot of tears in the midst of the holding. Yeah. But a lot of ecstasy. And I just hope to heck we don't go to sleep through all these shortcut little seductions that we've got. Mm-hmm. So if I could take anything back to two thousand seven is, you know, beware the siren songs of uh... the culture that would have you believe our answers lie somewhere else mm-hmm. than in the commons of life right. <laughs> as we've known it since the beginning of time these other things are all tools they're all devices and they all need to stay in their place and uh, we need to to reclaim those excitements mm-hmm. Because, in fact, those excitements are where the honey of life is.
0: We thank you for joining us for this episode of Stranova's podcast series. If you'd like to learn more about Stranova's business services and the topics discussed in this week's episode, please visit us at www.stranova.com, write us at ideas or visit our blog at blog.stranova.com. Our program materials are covered by a Creative Commons license, the Attribution Non-Commercial Non-Derivatives 2.5 license, by Brad Redderson. And this is Brad Redderson inviting you to join us soon for a future audio program exploring where strategy and innovation intersect.